0: Hello, Glowworms, and welcome to The Vanity Project with me, Vanity Von Glow. This is episode four of my podcast, and I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank everyone who's been so supportive of it so far. I'm really, really happy with the feedback that you guys are giving us. We know there will be technical improvements as time goes on but here at the start of 2022, we're just happy people are listening. We're happy that we got on the front page of a national newspaper with our Don Butler interview. And we hope that we're gonna have some more cut through with the fascinating conversations that are coming up in the next few weeks. Today's guest is someone I know from my real life. So this is one of the most relaxed conversations. And she's somebody who I admire as a performer, but perhaps even more so, I admire her as an organizer, a community leader, my name is Sadie Sinner and here is our conversation. Today on The Vanity Project, we are joined not just by a fabulous performer, but actually by a friend of mine. The first performer to come on as a guest so far Um, Hopefully, we'll be having fascinating conversations with interesting artists as the podcast unfolds. But there could be no better way to start uh, than with Sadie Sinner, creator of the Cocoa Butter Club, a true London diva, a singer, uh, kind of a comedian, a funny woman, (laughs) almost a female drag queen. Um, And she's going to talk to us today about some of her fabulous work. She set up the Cocoa Butter Club um, in uh, 2015, if I'm not mistaken she can tell us if that's right yeah and tell us a bit about what the cocoa butter club is there will be people listening from all corners of the globe sadie who have (laughs) no idea
3: Hello, Corners. Um, First of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, The Cocoa Butter Club is a performance platform, essentially, and it showcases and celebrates performers of colour and black performers. Um, And I founded it because there was an underbooking and underrepresentation of said performers, but also this false equivalence, the understanding that if they didn't, if there are no black performers, for example, in a lineup, um, then no black performers exist. So when I call it a performance platform, I mean, I've collected lots of performers from all around the world, and uh, put us in a centralised place where people can discover our talents. So
0: for clarity, this is very much within the world of cabaret, which is where we come from, me and you. Um, You know, performing in, uh, you know, there's lots of things in Cabaret you do, be it ranging from doing queer and gay bars and performance spaces like that to supper clubs and private members events, Um, even right up to larger scale things. You've now had the Cocoa Butter Club perform, I think, more than once at the Roundhouse in Camden, which is a huge venue
3: yes uh thank you so much for clarifying that the context that we sit in is cabaret um because i think about that all the time (laughs) when people are approaching us um like who we can support and such but the one of the aims of the cocoa butter club is to decolonize cabaret so that's to change our perception of what is cabaret and what is not cabaret um so sometimes I forget that we sit in the cabaret context because we're welcoming so many different things. We welcome um, like musicians and rappers because we want right. to know what's the difference between a rapper and a spoken word artist, essentially, like fundamentally. Yep. Um, yes. <laughs> and I
0: suppose there is a bit because it, you know, for example, we both sing in our shows and our shows are about, like music is the heart of the, of the show. Um, and we sort of make our jokes and our chat and our banter all around the music, but very much we're, we're singers, you and I, but we are very much cabaret singers. It's not necessarily the same thing as going to open mic and singing these songs that you wrote. Um, that, so our background is a little different. Whereas at the Cocoa Butter Club, you do have quite a, a broad spread of what you put on within cabaret because you're trying to showcase as many um, other performers, I suppose.
3: That is the perfect way to put it. Thank you. Um, Whenever I've done podcasts, I don't think anybody has actually taken the time to um, to present the questions in the way that you have, showing all the research and understanding that you have for the Cocoa Butter Club. So I'm just a bit taken aback by that. So thank you very much. Um Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know that I don't, it,
0: I mean, when it comes to you, there's like hardly any research required on my part because we've been friends for seven or eight years. And so I remember the whole genesis of when you started formulating your idea for the Cocoa Butter Club, putting it into practice, starting to throw events. I think um, whenever you put on events in cabaret, you really don't know if anyone's actually going to come. Like I do shows that <laughs> sell out all the time. And then I do shows that like, for whatever reason, maybe it's on a, a strange night of the week, just no one comes or you can't always guarantee numbers. But right from the get go, the Cocoa Butter Club really had a grassroots feel. There were people sitting on the floor in her upstairs in Camden, a venue that's closed now. And you, you literally had more customers than there were chairs in the venue. And people were so thirsty for, uh, I guess, a show where they could see performers who look like them. Is that, is that, do you think that's the secret yeah. to success?
3: Completely. It was, um, when we did the first ever showcase, it was something so radical. It was the answer to the question and the remedy to the issue that lots of people had noticed. Everyone was saying, oh, there's underbooking, there's underrepresentation, book more people of colour, but no one had done this thing, which was basically, okay, fine, you don't seem to be able to be finding the performers of color, so I will find them and I will put them in one singular show and you will see the talent that you can approach to book for your own shows. Um, This is speaking to producers and event organizers. Um, But something that I totally neglected to think about is that people who look like me um, or people who just believe the art of people of color is valid. Uh, would pack out the place completely because nothing like it existed. There were no cabaret shows where the entire lineup are people of color and. Um, also not the same type of people of color. When I look at our first ever lineup, we had Travis Alabanza. So we're looking at a trans femme poet as they uh, describe themselves. We had Lily Snatchdragon, who um who is the founder of the Bitten Peach, which is a Pan-Asian cabaret collective. And um, we also had Darren Banks as well. So a dark skinned black gay man um, singing. It was just, nothing that anyone had ever seen before condensed into one singular show. Right. I think one of the things
0: people listening won't realise um, is that like I, when you pointed this out through your work, but also in conversation those several years ago, like it really was true. Six or seven years ago, you could go and see 10 cabaret shows in a row, burlesque, vaudeville, all the rest, and you could watch 10 shows in a row and not see a single non-white performer. Now, I think that, you know, people have, there are a lot of opinions that people have around um, what you could call like diversity casting, but that was irrefutable. You could go and see 10 shows in a row and not see a single black person on stage. And that is alarming, you know?
3: Yes, um, I think it's because the idea of cabaret is um, like innately, as we understand it, is innately understood as a white people thing. Uh, So I'm saying that to you as a non-white person when I use this language, that there are some things that, um, yeah, different cultures would just say, oh, that's such a white person thing, like believing in ghosts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I
0: guess, like Habra, you do think of like, it's not so much the way now, but it is a bit like, you know, mums and dads putting on a nice suit and a nice dress to go out and watch a cabaret show. It right. does feel, it feels quite, I suppose its origins were kind of maybe upper middle class, but it has that that feel to it of, it's quite, um, uh, it's quite a traditional form. Because yes, cabaret, exactly. as much as artists are really exciting, like there's lots of brilliant cabaret, but also there's been lots of brilliant cabaret for 50 years. Like you could go and see a burlesque show Um, with the beautiful blonde Marilyn Monroe style burlesque dancer. And it's the exact same act she would have been doing in 1965.
3: Yes. Um, And and if you ask me, that's kind of the problem with it. Um, In that if we were not accepting that cabaret can, we're not pushing cabaret forward, basically. Like why Mm. in those 10 shows that you go to see in the year of 2000 and um, where are we? Like 16, 15. um, Yeah why is everyone referencing Marilyn Monroe? Because we're right. definitely living in this year. Why don't we have more contemporary work that addresses uh, or uses the music or the stylings of what our fashion is nowadays? And for example, that's something you can see at the Coco Butter Club. So I'll pick an artist for hypervisibility that everyone knows, Cardi B. Um, Mm. And then we have a performer called Cleo Panther, who was the first person to bring Cardi B into burlesque. So to make a kind of hip hop showgirl. um, And the reason that this is important, whether you listen to hip hop or not, it's about pushing the art form forward. We can't um, continue to be creating a thousand pieces of burlesque to jazz um, because it locks us in time. It's not that burlesque to jazz isn't important. No, it's just that how if the idea of burlesque is to be satirical and to take a look at our climate and to create from that and be inspired by it um, then why wouldn't we acknowledge our presence so Mm -hmm. if we're talking about the theory behind an artist like Cleopanther that means she's going to be using modern movement vocabulary again so that this podcast is is accessible to everyone Um, think about twerking basically and then now it's using that type of movement vocabulary in burlesque and all that's done is made a burlesque piece that is unapologetically from the 2010s we can tell it when we look at, yeah. it, we look at the material what it's referencing when we listen to it um but as a byproduct it also opens up the craft of burlesque to someone who does enjoy listening to hip-hop music. And then they're like, what? You can dress as a showgirl or you can put all these rhinestones on and be dancing to Cardi B. Um, And it just opens up our art forms, if anything, of like the smallest thing that it does. So it stops being this exclusive, kind of hierarchical, inaccessible thing. um, Because the whole idea of cabaret is escapism and that's for everybody. That's not reserved just for the upper echelon. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. You have a background actually in movement. So you're a singer now, um, but your qualification was in, was it contemporary? What, what was <laughs> it? I can't remember. Yes.
3: It, I always, in my
0: mind, I picture you like, you know, doing a dance class, but where instead of dancing, you have to like be a feeling.
3: <laughs> oh, you're very right. Very Martha Graham over there. In yeah. Yes, Duncan. Um, it's uh, yes. So my degree is in contemporary dance. I've always loved to move. Um, I think that also was part of my wanting more for burlesque. Um, and I say that as someone who doesn't do burlesque, but just watches a lot of it and has lots of friends who do create it. Um, I know that I wanted to just see it be more accessible to bodies that it's not in it's not understood to be inherently given to. So when I say this, I mean, if we think of burlesque, we think of Dita Von Teese. So we're already thinking of this very slender, small, petite person. So um, through my contemporary dance work, which taught me, by the way, that any type of body can do dance. And it can look different in all of our bodies and it's still valid. And I didn't have that confidence when I was learning ballet and everything when I was growing up. So I guess I wanted to see that in burlesque, that every type of body can do it which was already happening. I'm not saying I've come along and said, um, all different bodies in burlesque. If anything, that's the house of burlesque. Um, But something that I have done is said, let's look at different cultures and let's look how that manifests in our bodies and then in what we create.
0: Yeah. So in a way your work is about, it's about reach, it's about connect, because art's about connecting. So it's about trying to connect to more and more people, to bring people in, to invite them in. Um, I always think that, like, anytime I've been to the Cocoa Butter Club over the years, I, (laughs) like, it's literally a show that you want to be in, like, the energy, there's this real, um, I don't know, there's this forward thrusting shared vision from all the performers, so it's like watching a group of people who all are, have a shared mission, there's something about, like, that's what you get when you see a really good band, right, that, like, that band has their whole vibe, they're about a thing, and it's, like, it's very exciting, it's something that you want to, um, it's great when you watch performers and they they like convert you to their cause, you know? <laughs> and I think that one of the things Cocoa Butter Club does very well, because I, I'm aware there are other sort of derivatives. Since you started doing the Cocoa Butter Club, other people have seen great. We can also create our own church too, where we can showcase um, people of different uh, different backgrounds, different bodies, different uh, ethnicities and all the rest. But I do think that aside from its from its I suppose political mission statement the Cocoa Butter Club actually I've never seen a weak performance like it stands up completely on its merits as a show anyway I think like that's 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 the real miracle is the combination of the two because it
3: is such brilliant like cabaret thank you I am oh thank you (laughs) just having a moment that was really really beautiful of you to say and um, I'm going to play that to everybody Um, (laughs) when all of this is sorted. Um, I will say something actually Um, because we think about this all the time lots of people do say that like it's unlike any other cabaret that they've seen Um, and I'm just going to take a moment to toot my own horn and I strongly believe it is the way that it is because I am the person at the most behind it. Um, Now I'm not it is not an island and we have certainly performers who feel like the vertebrae. We have performers who feel like they are the DNA, performers who feel like they are the muscles and um, those who feel like they're the skin. Um, But I do think that there is something about my approach and my love for all of these performers and it's genuine. I think of us as family, which sometimes can be a bit difficult because actually it's a business yeah um, but we have different tiered shows so we have our showcases which is very community vibe that's very raw powerful palp- is it palpable that's it yeah energy yeah, quite yeah. immediate yes exactly and that's where you discover the brand new talent um, and it's through there that we nurture the talent to get ready for Uh, other commissions say when we go to do Brighton Pride if we go into a members club Um, and then from there we also develop to like the real elite elite performers those are the people who can commit those are the people who are trained for many years in aerial and fire and such and can help us execute the vision for our biggest productions such as our underbelly shows Um, but I think it's just knowing knowing what I wanted to create, which was like a world of its own, an ecosystem of its own. I used to say to performers who were like, who were sad that they couldn't get bookings um, from white producers. I was like, okay, well, take it in your stride. We're going to do this whole thing without them. We're going to create an entire pathway that can take you from interested in performing to being on the biggest, most prestigious stages. We're just going to make that ourselves so that You don't have to rely on someone who may not see your art as valid, who may not understand your art.
0: There's something brilliant about that that resonates with me and my background, like growing up. You know, I'm from a Scottish Presbyterian family, so there's this sort of stereotype of uh, Protestants in Scotland having quite a strong work ethic, which I always laugh about because I feel like it's escaped me. But... um, (laughs) But it's very much how my parents are and like how growing up it was it was like you got to work hard you don't you can't expect other people to fix everything for you and I actually hear some of that in what you say too that um, okay the world is imbalanced in many many ways and um, there are people who are you know, traumatized and miserable and upset about the imbalances and then there are people who say well I can still make my own thing, like come and get in the back of my car. We're going to do it anyway. Like, that's very much what you've done. Actually, it makes me laugh because when you were talking just then about, you know, you're kind of at the heart of you know, the Cocoa Butter Club is is your baby. And there's other other components, but you've driven you've driven this. Um, it kind of reminds me that, you know, you are kind of a diva at heart. And what I mean, what i what I mean by that, some people will hear that and think that that's a pejorative, but not for us because uh-huh. you and I know when we think of a diva, we think of like, you know, Celine Dion, Whitney, Patty LaBelle, Barbara Barbra exactly. Streisand, like powerful, at yes. boundary setting. I know my worth. I know my standards. I know I know what's expected, and I expect that from other people too. So, how did you become a diva, Sadie? Like, how, how is a baby sinner made? <laughs>
3: Yes, a Sadie Sinner is made by a mother who is one of 13 children and a Capricorn. Um, So I accept you'd have to subscribe to astrology for what I meant by that. (laughs) Um, Is basically someone who grew up surrounded by lots of other people and just has an innate duty of care for other people um, Mm. and wants the best for their family ultimately, um, and recognises that they can have a role in steering that. They don't have to be at the back. They can be the one at the front calling the shots and expressing what's a non-negotiable. So my mother is just absolutely wonderful. I'm first generation. uh, Our family's from Zambia, the first generation here in the UK now. Um, And... (laughs) My entire life was filled with little faux fur coats and like matching berets in my hair with my cousin um, and just looking a bit glamorous. And um, I don't know. It's, it's Your mum is know. very
0: glamorous, isn't she? For, yes, you know, exactly. The, the fabulous Justina, who her, her work is in sort of like human rights. Yes, you know? in philanthropy, so, exactly. So the um, things you've described on a personal level
3: are like it's her work as well. She's made her, a life from that type of um, commitment. Exactly. And she just taught me that you look after other people and you do it with grace. You can um, you can fight and argue with grace and you can walk away as the bigger person. Um, And that ultimate we have a saying in the whole of Africa. The one time we'll refer to the whole continent as one thing, um, (laughs) which is Ubuntu, which is I am because you are. Um, and that's just something that I've always grown up with as well. So I guess what I'm saying very chaotically is my mom taught me um, to have grace and to care about other people, but to also speak up when something is wrong and to be a leader and to set the standard of how you would like to see things. And yes. those are transferable qualities. They go into how you carry yourself, how you look, how you engage, how you fight for things. Um, So that's how I became a diva. Also my Aries moon, but there's that astrology again. (laughs) I like that idea of what
0: was the phrase again from the the phrase from the whole of Africa.
3: Oh, yeah. Ubuntu. So I am because you are.
0: Yeah, I am because you are. It makes me think of something that's crossed my mind post or during the pandemic, which is I've always thought of myself um, as being fairly self-sufficient. Um, but that illusion has been somewhat dissolved by the pandemic because at the end of the day, while we were locked down, you know, if I wanted to do a show, I need people to come to it. If I want to throw a dinner party, I need people to come to it. Like I need, we need other people to be the the the, the thing that we want to be in, you know, in many ways. And actually, um, you know, that was quite humbling as a performer to come to that realization that, um, you kind of need the trust and confidence of the audience um, generally. And that's what I I was thinking that that's something that when we see like great divas on stage, as I am obsessed with, and, you know, we've, we have had so many nights where you've been at my house and there's, you know, you know, two Celine Dion concerts in a row going on (laughs) and all that. And like, yeah, just the trust that a performer can have with an audience is kind of a wonderful thing.
3: Yes. um, If you don't mind, I was, I'll hone in on that for a moment so when yeah. people, when the audience at the coca butter club are like wow such an incredible show um I say on stage but I, I really I really mean it sincerely we are but a reflection of our audience um so that's multifaceted one we don't really go into places where there aren't people that look like us because that would yeah. be spectacle that would be like we brought in all these black people to show us how they do cabaret um right. that just like wouldn't work it's
0: voyeurism yeah. yes
3: exactly um but Sometimes we do have, you know, only a couple of people, a couple of black people, a couple of Asian people in the audience. Um, But what the audience comprised of our allies give us is um, like an unshaken belief in what we are doing. They want to see us win. And I always say this to our new cabaret acts whenever they're afraid. Like, I'm going to mess up. I said, no, something magical happens at the Cocoa Butter Club. Everyone wants you to win yeah yeah exactly the show they already believe in you and not necessarily from like a pity point of view either they just want to celebrate you they want to see what you are bringing to the table um yes yeah and that's because we're only able to be our most unapologetic selves because our audience basically allow us to be they hold the space for that for us um Yeah, and I just really wanted to honour and acknowledge and thank anyone in case they are already an audience member of the Cocoa Butter Club. um, Because we're only able to be who we are because of our audience, really.
0: I think about that myself as well, because um, (laughs) actually you cracked me up when you were, we we did the show a few, like a month or two ago. And uh, it was myself and you and, uh, and another performer, Soraya. And you came out, and I suppose like the most of the audience were kind of my audience. So you came out and were like, "I have never been in front of this many white people in my life." <laughs> yeah. And um, and my audience, I think this the sort of there's that thing of like audiences want the performer to succeed. One of the things I'm grateful for with the people who come to my shows is they really have a very sharp and acerbic sense of humor. So they, so yeah. that's kind of a gift to the performer because. I'm I'm not a particularly risque comic in my humor, but that's because my audience trusts and understands that when you wander into the into the gray areas and things get a little, they really trust your best intentions. Yes. And for example, you know, there's audiences. I come to my show have a have a thick skin. They've got a backbone. Um, I think that that's a symptom of that's one of the things that happens when your audience is largely gay male, because I think gay men have had to develop that from growing up. It's kind of what goes into drag a lot. Um, but, you know, they're happy to be ribbed ribbed, I suppose, for their whiteness by you, because here you're about to you know sing the roof off and give them a great show. And there's just so much goodwill. Um, And it was there was a great well that night in question had its had its problems when the power went out and everything. But that was such a fun show to do because we hadn't performed together in a while, and I was reminded of like uh, a sort of a, a clash of two different. We're not a clash of two different tones, but a blend of two different tones.
3: No, I understand what you're saying because, um, again, when we met each other all those years ago, we were different versions of ourselves as well. Yeah, and as we've grown and we've honed our crafts, and we were already really excellent then. So, what, like, <laughs> what, <laughs> what, but, um yes and now as we do like not see each other as much and we're developing our own because we perform together a bit as well so now we perform our own audiences and have our own fan bases but um I want to make it very clear when you do invite me to something yeah I never feel like oh gosh it's just gonna be me and I'm gonna be the other in this space um because if our audiences are a reflection of the artist and I actually that's for another podcast for another time Um, (laughs) but um, yeah you you are a very intellectual and just I don't know open person and open when I say that I mean for all life experiences Um, and I think that is reflected in your audience as well and the reason that we're mentioning this now is because um it's a it's the word prerequisite like it has to be it has to be that the way that you're wired you actually can't go to a cabaret show um, Oh, great example. Bless their hearts. Some girls up north had a lovely cabaret show. They got a email complaint email saying you didn't tell us this show was going to be political. You didn't tell us that the acts would not like Donald Trump and would be mentioning them. But here's the thing. You need to go to a cabaret show actually being willing to see both being willing to see someone who loves Donald Trump and being willing to see someone who hates it and is going to talk about that as well. Um, like, you just can't put yourself in a space to go see entertainment if you already have this really strict idea of what it should be and what it should not be. Um, so I guess I'm I... Pretty- can't think, I have to say, I can't think of a
0: cabaret show I've ever been to where some of the performers are pro-Donald Trump, um, personally. Oh. <laughs>
3: i i wonder because there's definitely someone who has a name that's really close to that and i'm like why would you pick that as your performer name um
0: that's right there's there's a drag queen called donna trump right yes
3: yeah and then i'm like i've
0: never seen i've never seen donna i don't know what she does
3: yes and then and i don't know if it's donna or another one who does like who as we say cheetos themselves up and everything and just does a donald trump uh, right act and I guess what I'm saying by that is there might be someone equally in the audience who's like I can't believe someone would even dress up and do this character um and what I mean is everyone has to shake any of their expectations when they're going into these spaces it's what will allow you to enjoy it the most and also allow the performers to be as different and as varied as possible otherwise you're just seeing versions of yourself talking back well, to a book you already love. How is it's that? It's
0: funny, because I do think that, I think that is actually a bit of a problem in cabaret, funny enough. So we might see this slightly differently, because I think, I think that if you go to almost any cabaret show, somebody could say, you know, fuck the Tories, and in brackets, fair enough. Um, but I feel like the audience will roar and cheer. And I feel like if somebody goes up and says, you know, you know, fuck Keir Starmer, it kind of gets a wince. But I think that's yeah. partly because, The people who go to cabaret are kind of more predisposed to be a bit left wing, which I, you know, I think is kind of fine and normal, just like people who are predisposed to become country singers are maybe more likely to be Republican in America. There are certain art forms that suit certain belief systems
3: yeah, we kind of get these feedback loops, these circles of just being pe- the people that you agree with, the people um, in right. your same quote unquote culture.
0: Um, yeah.
3: And I I think that you are right. And I also think that there's space for y- you to not know every single cabaret that exists ever. Um, and yeah. And we might even be pricing ourselves out. Like we might have to look at um, a really high end cabaret in a certain type of venue um, where most likely the people who patron it are themselves conservatives. And so, yes. because then you bet that content is actually going to, maybe they don't have a drag queen come on and do a Donald Trump act, but the, the performers we're seeing, everything is quite homogenous. It's quite the same um, because it fits into what that is. Um, but yes, I. you didn't ask for a solution and I don't think that there is one at the moment. Of, I don't think, I, and it's not our job to you yeah. know,
0: to to sort of necessarily resolve. I would Do you just know that, that, that way where like things just amass in certain places, like plaque on your teeth? It's like, you know, people as humans, we congregate in groups of people who are like-minded. That's kind of a, you know, I think yeah. that it's one of the reasons why Um, as you know I've you know I've banged my drum many times about free speech and that's because I think that free speech is a way that we it's not really about what you get to say it's kind of about what you get to hear so for me I think of free speech as holding free speech as a value is a form of like moral hygiene that we need to do personally to make sure that we're always open to new ideas even if on the face of it half the things you would hear that you know are covered by free speech are just dumbass, stupid ideas but I feel like that's kind of a way to keep yourself from becoming too covered in plaque you know and 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 stuffy.
3: I actually radically agree with this and there's something in my practice when I'm talking about redistributing and reclaiming the narratives of bodies of color or queer bodies um uh, I speak about comfort in discomfort basically um And I'll say in this kind of story way, um, there is a particular personality online that um, says some quite outlandish things. And lots of people are like, don't follow this person. Um, I actually do follow this person. And um, someone tried to pull me up on it. Like, how can you? They've said things that are homophobic and such. Um, They've said things that are homophobic and such. And my response is because I need to know the homophobic rhetoric that's going out there actually. Um, yeah you 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 want to keep your eye like live in your world yes precisely yeah I actually want to know what's going on I want to know what's the most dangerous thought someone can think and um maybe that's because I've grown up my whole life as a dark-skinned black person so actually I've been quite exposed to some of these things already and I know just because you close the door on the person saying it doesn't stop them from saying it no and if you um, cut off your ability to be able to hear what's being said, then you actually then everything is an ambush when that person suddenly yes. comes for you, you didn't know where it came from. When if you had been monitoring the entire time, you can, it's how you can predict what's going to happen next. Uh, there's about to be an onslaught of aggression against um, you know, uh Trans people, we know this because we see when we look at the Guardian, we see when we look, we see what people are writing, so we can now prepare ourselves for what is to come. But if we didn't see any of those articles or anything, and we live in a world where we think that everything is safe and wonderful for those people, um, yeah, I just I think that we need to be aware. Um, and I had never thought right. about the way you said it.
0: People can be quite um, squeamish, I think, about like language that's jarring or hurtful. And I understand why, because nobody wants to be hurt. Like, I, you know, I didn't have a single day growing up in high school. Like, I mean, this literally not a single day where I wasn't called a faggot or a gay boy or something like that by. I mean, it was funny because it's endemic by kids who were younger than me. I'd be in fifth year in high school where you're like 16 and 12 year olds are calling me a faggot because that's how low in the pecking order you are because you're gay to these kids. Now, you know, and they would do it in front of teachers. And, and so it was not endorsed, but it wasn't ever really properly refuted and you know that doesn't it it, that type of language isn't necessarily acceptable it's not it's not it's not nice it's really horrible but it kind of means that now as a 32 year old I'm not particularly squeamish about that kind of language um I don't know I feel like um actually it's one of the things I think goes into being a drag queen is that part of what makes a drag queen is the there's that outsider perspective the feeling of having been marginalized and it's not something I want to give up I don't necessarily want to be enfranchised into the middle of society and you know and be the golden white girl like Nicole Kidman who I love (laughs) um you know like actually part of my integrity and my identity and my truth and all of that comes from being a marginal persona being somebody who gets you get you know, if you're in the margins, you get a very clear view of what's going on in the middle. And that's what makes the court jester so funny and able to make fun of the situation. Do you know what I mean? Like, so for, for, I wonder if you feel the same, like for us, it's, um, you know, we don't, God, we don't want to have our rights taken away. We don't want to miss out on the opportunities that we've surely sometimes missed out on. And um, But also I don't really want to give up my perspective either.
3: Yes, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that like, as we were talking, I was like, oh gosh, it might be quite easy for someone to listen to what we're saying and to n- not understand the brain wave that we seem to be sharing in the moment of having yeah. this conversation. We're not saying um, go out there and allow people to abuse you. No, but no. we are saying you have to be aware that abuse happens, it exists. And if you can. Um, Okay, so I wanted to say the phrase, something I learned in a therapy that I've done, it's called distress tolerance. So again, I'm mm. not saying go and sit in a not saying go and sit in a room full of racists and sit in the center and have them talk about you, but I am saying that it's going to be helpful to yourself to be aware that those things are happening. And if there's anything that you you can hear or listen to yourself and get a grasp of yourself and have your own thoughts about, um, it will. Just help you understand that person who's coming up with yeah who has this rhetoric
0: I think it's one of the things that I've always held true I remember back when we first met each other and like um it was I think in both of our lives was that very explosive sort of early mid-20s period where you're just drinking and all these influences from friends and I I you know was meeting so many new people at that time and um one of the things that I've always felt is people don't realize that they've usually got more power than they think they do. And that actually there's power in every position. And um, yeah, I feel like it's been a great thing in our friendship is like watching you go from setting up your cocoa butter club and other events because you used to have the royalties too, just watching you go and like making things happen in the real world. You know what I mean? Like making an idea, going to practice. I I have a few other friends that really inspire me in that way. So when I say that I respect the work you're doing, that's not in that like funny fan way. That's in it. I really know, I'm really acknowledging what goes into growing like that and reaching your capabilities. And it's because you're very formidable. So um, I'm so, so grateful to have had you come on and talk about your work today because I think the people who listen to this from my end will actually be quite interested to hear about what you've been doing.
3: Oh I hope so and I hope that everyone understands that everybody is welcome at the Cocoa Butter Club um it's definitely just black people and people of color on stage though okay
0: (laughs) yeah that's that funny thing of like like I was saying earlier I'm like on on one level it's like wow I want to be in that show but I'm actually quite a believer in like specific safeguards around spaces like I don't necessarily if I'm in the gay sauna I kind of do want it to just men you know because there's a point at which the integrity and the mission statement of a thing is is violated if you change the, the program there's plenty if, if somebody wants sees Cleopantha and Reese's Pieces and all these performers on your stage and thinks how amazing they are well then fucking book a show and book them on your show yes, don't go exactly. barging into their on their stage saying I want to be part of this the whole point is it's a chance to see people be inspired and then say come and do my thing now
3: Precisely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, just to reiterate what I said earlier, this has actually been one of my favourite um, interviews or discussions because you just really knew what you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, that, that's
0: probably a first. We're interviewing um, an MP actually in a couple of weeks, a Labour MP, and I am anxious because um i might not know what i'm talking about so hopefully hopefully it goes as well as this one sadie sinner thank you so much for coming on the vanity project um all of the information for your upcoming shows and for the cocoa butter in general will be posted around or near this podcast so people can find out a bit more and hopefully see you live and in person very soon
3: perfect thank you so much
0: Every week here on the Vanity Project, we reflect on the discussion with the main guest, uh, with one of my friends from the world of nightlife and cabaret. This segment is called Queen's Corner, and today's guest is the Queen of the cult movies. It's none other than Bunny Galore. Hello, Bunny.
2: Oh, hello, Vanity. Oh my goodness, we're reunited at last through the we digital age on we're a podcast. In the digital
0: realm, we are, we are, we are, but we are but voices in the in the ether now. <laughs> You are a drag queen who um, is probably best known for your commentaries and analysis of horror movies, um, on uh, some of the TV channels with the show horror shows. You love a cult movie. You love The Bride of Frankenstein and the Draculas and all of that stuff, don't you? Oh, totally! I love the way you
2: make me sound like really, uh, like I know what I'm talking about, and it's a very classy show that I do. Um, it's more like a cave painting back to the old days of TV. I'm dragging television back. In the nineteen seventies, kicking and screaming, one that's viewer an aesthetic at a time.
0: Choice that's an aesthetic choice, isn't it?
2: <laughs> There's so <laughs> yes, much. Yes, I am an aesthetic out. choice. Yes, thank you, vanity.
0: There's so much in TV that's very pirate uh, techniques, but actually, you know, a good. I I used to love those shows on Channel Four or Channel Five at the end of the year that would count down like the top one hundred celebrity fails of the year or the top 100 musicals and you know they show a bit of it and then they have someone pop up in the corner to comment on it that's well you you've do. done that vanity i've see i've always wanted to be a talking head i did realize that
2: that's kind of the area i walked into which was basically being a talking head and for quite a long time i've been very aware i'm only about the mid shot it's only lately that i've returned to live performing again post pandemic, that I've realised, like, oh, my God, I've kind of forgotten. I literally am about the mid-show. But you've been on some of those shows. Uh, you, you've you done things I want to do.
0: That's right. Yes. I've talked about Kylie Nogue, which is my uh, one of my areas of expertise um, amongst many. You know what? I really want to do one of the shows where I get to talk about Wendy Williams and Celine Dion. And those are the people who I like to talk about.
2: I've, I've been watching a lot of the Wendy Williams show because of Michelle Visage and Leah Remini. Um, sort of guest hosting it, and I'm obsessed with them uh, guest hosting Wendy Williams.
0: Um, yeah, they're doing. So I've they're kind of doing discovered okay. her show via them. I think Michelle could manage without Leah, if I'm honest, but obviously she's. I not think not yes, it's up.
2: obviously. I think as Leah's a friend of the show, I think that maybe has yeah. been a guest a lot. That's the way it's gone in. Do I think Michelle could host her own show like that? Yeah, of course. With, with you know, with uh, two hands behind her back, she could do that.
0: I will say this though, I don't know if you'll be aware if you didn't, if you didn't really watch the Wendy Williams show, like she is absolutely singular as a host. Like there's nobody like her. Her Joan Rivers said of Wendy Williams that she could host the full hour with no guests. Like she can just oh, talk. Totally. Cause, Cause she, you know, she was a radio girl. Um, mm-hmm. And I really like, when I was talking to Sadie about divas, like I see Wendy Williams as a diva, somebody who's just, when they're in their flow state and they know exactly what they're doing, they are just quite yes. quite wonderful.
2: Well, what I mean is, I've discovered the show is I'd never watched a whole episode because I didn't think it was available in the UK. Yeah. So I'd only ever seen clips. And where I don't know whether it's just because the guest hosts are doing it, but they seem to be doing whole episodes on YouTube.
1: So mm. I've
2: been sitting down and watching. An unedited episode, no adverts, but yeah. so that was really lovely to see. Whether I, I would totally watch the whole Wendy Williams show with Wendy Williams if there was that.
0: that you um, need to event. get BET. You can get BET, which I think is Black Entertainment Television, and you can yes. get that in the UK. You yes, can I do get that. that channel. Um, and yeah, I mean, but anyway, enough I of think Wendy. That Williams.
2: channel was part of the station. I've been working with for a long time. I think. I think that was their way into the UK was via this little network that I'm yeah probably I've been part of for
0: a long time. probably. I mean nowadays. You can, if there's a will, there's a way. We cannot, you know what I mean. If you dig hard enough, you'll find anything you want. You might find things you didn't want. Um, <laughs>
2: yes, but, but our back catalogue of uh, of projects probably that's. <laughs>
0: so you're you're kind of a West End girl. I always think a lot of your social group, the the other drag and cabaret and West End performers who you know are quite based in musical theatre and acting. Um,
2: yes, yeah, so my I, I I'm a kind of. Uh... I've always had this duality of working in theatre as well as with Bunny Galore. And there's sometimes when I work a lot as Bunny and there's sometimes I work more in theatre and it's kind of gone from one side to the other. I think that's possibly come from uh, training in musical theatre and being based in it. And uh, I always did pantomime, although I've kind of stopped a little bit now, partly because of the pandemic. And this year I completely vet the wrong way. I thought, oh, it's never going to come back. Oh no, like 2021, something will happen and theatre will be cancelled again. And I was wrong. Although after the last 24 hours, I probably shouldn't speak too soon. But uh, it, it, so I was like, oh, I won't do Pantomime this year because it won't happen. And then it did. Um, but as I say, we, we possibly, <laughs> as, of, as of recording this, it's fine. But So I,
0: I wonder, do you get to go into, because West End shows are so, you know, these big ensembles, these these tightly, tightly rehearsed projects. But do you ever get to go and take a night off at something like the Cocoa Butter Club or these kind of they're more they're more in the sideshow end of things. There's quite a chaotic energy to them. Although Sadie runs a very professional show, it's a different thing from that slick West End feel.
2: Sure. No, totally. Funny. Uh, so I used to do a West End cabaret show called the Wambam Club for many years, which was at the Café Dupree. Uh, And I, as far as Bonnie Galore goes, she literally landed and kind of rode the wave of that neo cabaret in a, yeah. from 2006 onwards, when really the gay scene wasn't very um, articulately clever, perhaps in the t- choice of what you could sing, like you couldn't sing musical theatre back then so much in, in, on, the, on the gay scene. So I, thankfully, when that came along, because Bonnigalore almost died around the mid noughties because there wasn't really uh, a place for her to exist, apart from being in like a, a one-woman cabaret musical theatre type show in a fringe theatre, which I'd done. I'd done at Edinburgh Fringe, but I was really kind of, couldn't find the right area, and then suddenly that neo-cabaret came back. And I rode that way for years, you know, and, um, and worked with a lot of exciting artists uh, uh, throughout the whole spectrum. And it was very, uh, although it was quite vintagey and raw, it was really interesting listening to what Sadie said about, but I would say that we were probably a little bit, we were very mainstream. yeah, uh, And our audience were white middle-class yeah, uh, because it was a big commercial West End show. Yeah. So I found that really interesting what she was saying about uh, I, that and I, what I, I've seen things change much in the last five years. In fact, I went to see Ben in Peach uh, a couple of weeks ago at the Vauxhall yeah. Tavern, which was I loved. I love so much. And I, I part of me thinks it's such a shame that I don't want those artists to feel like they have to create a world where they feel segregated. But on the other hand, I applaud anybody producing a show where they feel uh, uplifted, but I'd rather we all be integrated together, obviously.
0: Yeah, well, I think that, and the good thing is we can have both, you know, in just the same way that, you know, I might prefer a night out at at a gay club, you know, surrounded by by our friends and family in the gay community. But I'm also happy if under duress to go to a straight club and have a night there. It's just nice to be able to have your retreat and I think that what's because what Sadie when Sadie set up the Cocoa Butter Club, um, which I think was the first in in the wave of of these sort of um, of these specific cabarets for people of specific um, racial backgrounds, um, when she set it up, it was like it was for a lack of that kind of thing, mm. and I would say that in drag. I'd say that in drag specifically, I always think of like Sandra, who's absolutely hilarious, son of a tutu. These drag queens who are who are people of color. Um, drag wasn't necessarily as white as cabaret generally, but burlesque and cabaret, I did feel was quite. I think that neo burlesque popularity emerged in the late two thousands was very like a white girl thing. Um, yes, very very you much. Know what so. I mean, I remember it was quite, we had and a bit manzy um, as well. As far as the burlesque girls
2: go, yes. uh, Wham Bam was a variety show, so you would have, you know, uh, acro, aerial, comedians, um, singers, funny galore, uh, as well as burlesque. So I think there was a lot more diversity with some of the other uh, types of uh, performers, not so much with the burlesques, and I, we had a, uh, a troupe of dancers that the Wam Bam dancers. So we tried to introduce a bit of diversity there. Not that they were ever hired for any other reason apart from them being wonderful people and good at their jobs, but yet you you would try to bring a little bit more sort of diversity. I don't know if that was a conscious thing or maybe we just maybe just something that we wanted to do
0: perhaps. But I think there's something about aesthetics in cabaret is that. I always think if you're making the poster for a show, I mean, I tend to be the only person in a show that I do. Like it's me and so if it's a poster, it's usually just me. But <laughs> and so you've got, should it
2: be. <laughs> and so should it be.
0: If you're doing a variety show, like you want the evening to sell an idea of everything. You know, variety is the spice of life. So you want people who look um kind of different in your show. As that for me, that's an aesthetic thing aside from the diversity sort of motivation it's just that you want something that is vibrant and colorful and and with various perspectives like i say unless you're coming to see the vanity von glow show in which case there will be one perspective and it will be mine (laughs) no totally i
2: love the idea i think i heard that right sadie was saying she they've created like a database of artists did i get that right
0: that's right i think
2: is genius because um when So one of the things we worked on together, obviously last year at my lockdown show, which was the Loosely Baked, which is the drag queen version of uh, Loose Women women. that we did together. Uh, Funny enough, the one thing I was struggling with was to add diversity uh, when I was trying to, obviously I cast it from the sense I knew certain people, but I really wanted to find someone wonderful and that wasn't, you know, looking like the rest of us kind of thing. would be far more... Um, somewhat exciting, and that's I found Mahatma Candy eventually, but that was through scrolling through uh, Instagram for ages because I just didn't know and, and somebody that would be available and in London that could come and do the show.
0: I think that people are really appreciative of just honesty about um, when when we're when you're trying to cast five people on a show or you're trying to put put something together, you want it to. Um, at the end of the day, you want it to satisfy a few objectives. And if you're communicating it outwardly, you do want people to feel that you're communicating to them. And sometimes that might be that you want to have people from lots of different backgrounds, racially, sexuality, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that um, that's something I've, when I cast for my brunch shows, it's something I've never consciously thought about and then when there was the huge debates going on around diversity casting and stuff like that a few years ago I felt quite confident because in my shows just based on their talent and their brilliance I have racially diverse casts for my brunch shows all the time and always have going right back to when it was like me and Tace and Caramel and Kiki Snatch and stuff like that and um and booking acts who are from you know who are different races and to me, that's like putting on a, a vibrant, colorful show. Um totally.
2: I think what I, my problem I realised a year ago because I had been on probably the drag scene uh for quite a while, I didn't really know any drag queens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anybody else? I know you, uh, Kitty Scott Claws and Ophelia Love. And that's why I asked you because you were the first three people I f- could feel comfortable approaching about something which is wasn't going to pay any money, but yeah. I knew it would be a good project, you know, a good showcase for us all. Yeah. Um, and that was where the problem was I didn't know anybody else <laughs> to ask but Also, you're, you're three brilliant people, but and so it's it maybe now I think a year later, where I've been uh, performing a lot more, I've met so many more people, and I think also drags kind of you know obviously exploded. This, this is what year.
0: Sadie's whole project is about. It, it's obviously about the empowerment of the artists who she works with. I mean, at this point, she's almost like their agent, you know. it. it I feel like an actual that's next great, step though. I think
2: it's such a brilliant idea, that but is it's such like, a great help. Put yourself out there.
0: And there's no doubt, like if you're stuck in your trip, if you're thinking, gosh, you know, I've not I've not mixed with drag queens in a few years. And I don't know who's who and who are the people to book. And so you have a word to Auntie Sadie and she tells you, she's like, well, do you know what? Do you want someone new that everyone's talking about? Here's so and so. Do you want somebody that's been doing this for years and they can do this? Get so and so. And like that's, you know. It's about setting up these mini institutions, just these little networks in which people can actually um, join the dots and link people up. Because actually, people know weirdly, people can do that- I they'll... get
2: asked a lot myself. I don't know why people approach me as much, whether it's because I'm a kind of a link between the media world and, and theatre world and cabaret world, perhaps I get asked a lot. And I always suggest, you, you know, you always suggest, you know uh you know so is Ophelia, so kitty as well but obviously kitty's got busy now he's too but, busy now <laughs> but like and there's a list of people i'll go through depending on what type of artist they want um as much as my humble opinion goes and even then i'll suggest people well i don't know them personally but i'll um i'll i recommend you know uh, caramel or i'd recommend you know whoever i thought was fabulous or uh, or why is she black i was i love her i really want, i really want to work with her i want to do a show with her my sheet should be amazing. Um, but it's, it's, I always have a, a list of, and I don't know why people ask me, because I, I, a year or so ago, I didn't really know that many artists. I didn't know many other drag queens, intentionally.
0: <laughs> Maybe you need to set up an agency. There's probably I enough do, People keep on telling you that, and I,
2: I probably should do. I probably, no, I mean, I wouldn't charge people. I just want to kind of, I, just a, a gestalt
0: of drag would be fabulous. Well, <laughs> I, I feel like, God, if you're not charging people, then I wouldn't even fucking sit up and answer the phone. Um, Bunny Galore, thank you so much for joining me for the Vanity Project. I am, you know, I'm excited, but I'm a bit nervous about all these conversations with the different guests. So it's really good to have somebody from... Um, you know from dragon cabaret to just keep it real a bit at the end so thank you for joining us for queen's corner and hopefully we'll pleasure as too. always
2: vanity i love you very much you're always so eloquent and intelligent you make me feel like a cave painting as always but uh thank you very much i had a wonderful time